Welcome to another episode of Fight the Burnout. Today we have John Mullet here. He is a ex-New York police de uh, police department officer. Uh, has a very interesting story, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Uh, and also, he now runs a uh, a business uh, called Mission First uh, Partners, and they're doing a lot of good wellness and have been for a long time uh, for uh, our first responders and and police department. So. As I always like to do, John, let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background in policing and also what you do now. Thank you, Chris. Uh, as you said, my name is John Millet, and I am the founder of Mission First Partners. And uh, to really tell you the story of where Mission Partners, Mission First Partners, came from, we got to go back about twenty years. Now, uh, I started my law enforcement career in 1990 as a special, uh, special agent trainee in what used to be the United States Customs Service and uh, had a very uneventful law enforcement career uh, and until, uh, like a lot of people, it took a big turn on September 11th, 2001. Uh, that day, I was working at 25 Broadway right outside the statue of the bull on Wall Street. So um, I was there for the entire attack. We were in the cloud. We were in the aftermath. Uh, I spent the next 48 hours down there. And then for the next two and a half months, I was part of a team that three times a day would take the families of the missing and the deceased uh, down into the pit so they could review it, so they could view the recovery effort that was going on and uh, offer them whatever kind of comfort and solace we could uh, and here to listen to a shoulder to cry on while we were down there. Uh, needless to say, it left a mark. Um, I lost friends that day. 20 years later, I'm still losing them. I lost my career and I lost eight years of my life to PTSD. But maybe the only thing worse than everything that I lost there were the people, my friends, that were left behind and having to see what became of their lives. I watched people go down into that pit every day and come out shells of what they were when they went in. Some of them were like me. They were able to get very high quality mental health treatment and um, start putting their lives back together. Other people weren't so lucky. They, uh, they tried to hold their lives together with string and chewing gum and limp across the line to their 20th anniversary when they could retire. And I'm sorry to say, not all of them made it. And they're the reason I do this, and they're the reason this company exists. So for a number of years, I was had a nice, quiet life. I was happily retired. And uh, then a friend of mine approached me because uh, he was a founder of a startup that was going to be a treatment, a uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment facility specifically for veterans and first responders. Now, uh, he was former Navy, so he had a lot of people on the military side, but he didn't have anybody on the first responder side. So he asked me to work on his advisory board with him. And it actually was a great experience. Uh, I got to help create their first responder program. I wrote all of their training materials. I established their relationships with a whole bunch of law enforcement agencies in New England. And for several years, uh, he had been encouraging me to go out on my own and start my own shop. 
uh, to do training. And then in the summer of 2020, three things all happened at the same time, in the same week, I should say. Uh, one was I finished writing a program called Psychological Survival School, which was a two-year um, project to create a program that would address PTSD, uh, mental health, and suicide prevention specifically for law enforcement. That same week, the executive director of the New Hampshire Chiefs Association called me and uh, asked if I could help out with his uh, trade show because his uh, psychological presenter had dropped out at the last minute. And I told him that I had just finished this project and he liked it and he wanted it for the trade show. And then that weekend, unfortunately, we had two law enforcement suicides in New Hampshire. Uh, one of them was in the town where I live. So that was kind of my sign that it was time to do this. So at 12.01 a.m. September 11th, 2020, Mission First Partners officially became a New Hampshire company. And uh, it was very important for me that the company started on that day because to me, it was a day, uh, it was a way of taking this day that had haunted me for the last 20 years mm -hmm. and finally turn it around and try and turn it into something that could help other people. I got goosebumps through that whole thing because I can feel the, yeah, I, I still remember, I think everybody around the world remembers where they were and what was going on that, that day. And for you to be just down the road, um, that must have, yeah. And all the people that you lost, the f colleagues, the friends, the yeah family that we call them. Um, yeah. Uh, how... So many, so many questions I have. Um, <laughs> and how, how did you, you know, working through, because I know for me in my policing, the thing that took the most toll on me was that emotional side of telling families, those notification jobs, those advising jobs, telling the families and having that, having to work through that emotional side and in a way disconnect yourself from it and then trying to reconnect yourself. How did you work through that on during those times during that you know America had just been attacked the the all of that all of those emotions but then also working with the families of the victims and that of the, all those people that were in the in the trade towers and around the trade towers Well you know it's it's funny you talk well, I, I'll I'll address the, the World Trade Center stuff specifically in a moment but it's just it clicked it's kind of funny that you talk about doing notifications cuz in my classes one of the things I ask my classes is when did you realize this job was starting to change you and it was starting to change who you are? And I, I get, I always get a lot of different reactions to it, but I always say for me, I knew this job was changing me when those death notifications stopped being hard to do, when mm -hmm. it became something just very sort of rote and very mechanical. And we, we had that experience also because uh, in the first couple of days when we were still putting everything together, uh, my team was responsible for a list. Now, uh, what happened was in the immediate aftermath, there were a lot of people in the hospitals who were unidentified. So as we were identifying them, we kept a list uh, that people could come and check and see if their loved ones were on. And it was my, it was our responsibility to maintain this list and to talk to these family members. And um, that was probably one of the harder parts because you would have people come in and they 
were just sort of looking straight ahead, hoping they were going to finally get this news that whoever they were looking for was found. And then um, or one of my colleagues were the person that had to tell them, no, I'm sorry, they're not on the list. And uh, you know, I've said to people, as a cop, you can understand taking away somebody's freedom. You can understand taking away somebody's life. But there's nothing like the feeling of taking away somebody's hope. There's nothing that can prepare you for that. And, and, you know, and the other thing is we were doing it. Um, uh, people started making, um, I guess for lack of a better word, missing persons posters and putting, putting them up where we were uh, keeping the lists as we were identifying people. And I would sit there was on a working day and I would start to look at all these pictures all these uh, posters with pictures on them. And the thing that struck me about them was that the kind of pictures they were. They were birthdays, they were holidays, they were vacations, they were graduations. All these pictures were probably taken on the happiest days of these people's lives. And now they were being used to identify them. And that's one of the things that I carry with me after all these years to um, um, even after 20 years, I'm still haunted by those faces. Yeah, man. So how how did you get through it in those days? You know, I, I have to tell you, when it was actually going on, it wasn't hard because we were working 12, 16-hour days. We were just going back. We had that sort of mission right in front of us that we had to keep going after we had to be there for the families we had to stay on top of you know any risks that were coming up but it wasn't until things died down and we finally um had that downtime to sort of process everything that you've been through that's when it really begins to hit you um my group i happen to be lucky the lieutenant that ran the group, uh, she happened to have a PhD in psychology and she crafted the procedure by which we would take the families down, the support systems that we had in place and everything like that. And every day before we started for the day, she had us all sit in a circle and just talk about, you know, how we were feeling and, and wow. everything like that. And that was probably kind of the first exposure that I ever had to that sort of like peer support. But um, she also wrote, a, after uh, the fact, she also wrote a couple of articles for academic journals. And I'll never forget one of them. She said, and it's the truth, and it happens to all of us, she said, my cops were vessels that thousands of people had deposited their grief into. And by the time we got to the end, they were very, very full. Mm. And um, you really, like I said, at the end, you have that downtime, you start to process things. And it was really interesting to see some people's reactions to it. Some people fell apart. Some people a lot of people came became very for lack of a better word very kind of hedonistic like it had just been impressed on them in a very dramatic fashion that life was fleeting and they needed to grab all of it they can uh in my case i became very very angry i mean unbelievably angry to the point that it scared me hmm. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I can I can kind of relate with you. Not to the you know not from the same circumstances, but yeah, I got to the same stage where I was angry as well. Which it is. It's scary, isn't it? When you 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 have these outbursts and this anger. I don't know how yours was, but you you end up. You're like this. All you want to do is yell at the walls, and the walls don't want to listen. It's yeah. It's funny. I was doing some stuff for myself and that some personal development stuff, and I remember somebody asking me um, or saying something around you know my policing and you know what were you like, and I was uncovering things, and I was like, if I was having a bad day, guess what? You got a bad day. And that is completely not. And like I look back, I'm like, wow, man, that, no wonder I was so burned. But so, what did you start? You know, in those immediate days after, because I know you've done a lot of work on yourself and over the years and that. On those immediate days after, what did you do? Did you do anything to kind of work on yourself with that anger and that, or did it just kind of was it there for a while? It, it was there for a very long time, and. Even though it was, it's not that long ago. Relatively, it was twenty years ago. We didn't talk about these things like self care and you know talking talking to professionals. Fortunately, uh, they did create a program for us at Mount, Sin uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, the World Trade Center first responder program, which actually still exists to this day and is still taking care of people. And uh, that's where I met my first psychologist. And that actually, knowing her actually very much impressed upon me, the need not just for professional care for first responders, but for culturally competent professional care for those first responders. Because um, once, once I retired and I didn't want to go into the city anymore every day, um, I had obviously find a new psychologist. So I went through four or five of them before I found one that was a good fit. But I always said the first couple that I saw, it was a good thing that they weren't the first people that I saw. Because if I had, I probably would have left. And I probably would have left and never went back. And the likelihood is I'd probably be dead by now. Mm, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, you said you know a lot of a lot of the guys that you knew from back then, you know, didn't make it till now. How does? What do you think was the difference between you actually, you know, continually seeking and working on yourself in that versus you know the the men and women that weren't able to uh, to do that for themselves? Well, you know, I I, ha I had access. To some very good people to some very good people at the Mount Sinai program. Um, part of part of what they did to help me begin to get better was I had to understand that where I was with my PTSD, um, it was it was going to be tough for me to go on. So I had to make a decision. And that decision was if John Millay ever had a chance, was ever going to have a chance at life, Officer Millay was going to have to die. And uh, that, that was a very tough decision to make because a lot of our lives, a lot of our identity is wrapped up in this job. And, you know, I think that was one of the things that made me kind of rudderless for a lot of years was that I didn't have that contact back to, back to the job. Uh, my, my wife tells me I'm only at my best 
when I'm around cops. And, you know, and that's, that is the part of this that I get from it that helps me. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a very strong thing. And that's one of the reasons we encourage peer support so much because even somebody that isn't doing very well themselves, they can be encouraged. They can find purpose by helping somebody else. And, you know, because we come from that background of helping, we're, we're always looking for that way to help, to help somebody else. Um, you know, you talk about how we, we didn't talk about things. One of the things I talk about when I lecture on this stuff, um, the first arrest I ever made, the NYPD, it was called a 511, aggravated unlicensed operation, somebody driving with a suspended license. Very common rookie collar. This one wasn't so common, though, because this one had a dead eight-year-old kid under a car that got hit by somebody passing a school bus. And I said, after I did my reports, after I did my notifications, after I did everything what I was supposed to do, you know what I did? I got back in my car and I went back out on patrol. Yep. I never asked myself if I was okay. My boss has never asked if I was okay, and I can't even fault them because you know what? I don't think anybody ever asked them in their careers if they were okay. But I think that was one of the things that needed to change. We needed to start asking each other, "Are you okay?" You know, it's so it's so it's so true because I, while you were saying that, I was I, I was like, okay, what's my what was my first arrest and and all that? I don't think I was ever asked. Are you okay with what we just went to or how you know how are you doing after that job or i mean i went to a guy who'd been dead for three weeks not even out of police college like police academy i was on what they called station duty halfway through went to a guy who'd been dead for three weeks and then went back to the station and ate rice and you know what happens i mean any any law enforcement or first responder knows what the body's like after three weeks oh yeah <laughs> we never talked about it afterwards then straight out of police college a few weeks afterwards went to a guy who jumped in front of a train the first thing that i found was his heart on the ground never got asked are you okay with what you just saw straight out of training <laughs> and, and you know what and we've always accepted that's what it is and you know what the truth is the job is a catalog of hearts yeah. and that part of it is never going to change but what we can change is how we train people to react to it yeah. and how we support it. Now, the guys I learned this job from, their answer to all of this was have another drink. That, yeah. that, that was it. For that generation of cops, that was the one, so, that was the one socially acceptable way to, to deal with, uh, with, with trauma was you went to the bar, you had a drink, you talked about it. Or maybe you didn't talk about it. Maybe you just had a few more drinks. And, you know, that that clearly was not the way to go mm. because that damaged a whole lot of people as well. So if you could, I know you, you're doing this training. So what is it that you, you know, what, what, would, what would be the top three things, say, or maybe five things that you tell or teach, um, you know, the young or not so young uh police officers and first responders nowadays so that what happened for you, I like to say, during your career and that and helped you get to where you are now, 
you know, so that, that doesn't, you know, so they don't have to go through that and live that themselves. They can, you know, collapse that time as such and, and work through it sooner or not even have to have the need to work through it. Well, you know, uh, I talk about several things. Yeah, you know, one of the things we do, whether we realize it or not, is something called compartmentalization, hmm. where we take all these traumas and we file them away into these small compartments. And that is very important because, especially when you have these mass casualty situations, these injured kids, stuff like that, you have to be able to separate that horror of what you're seeing from the clarity you need to do you need to do your job so that is that is an important skill the problem is we become too entrenched into it and then we begin to compartmentalize every part of our of our lives and that's where it becomes really bad and that's one of the things that you need that you you need to stay aware of uh you know one of the things that i tell i tell them is one of the secrets, I think, to surviving this job, and it's not really a secret, it's actually very simple. It's when you're home, be 100% at home, and when you're at work, be 100% at work. And it's very easy to say, it's very difficult to do. But I tell them, if you need motivation, here's your motivation. If you are at work and you start letting the stuff at home creep into work, and you start letting it take over what you're thinking and you keep your eye and you forget how dangerous this job really is and you take your buy off the ball one day the chief is going to be handing your spouse a nice crisply folded flag while a bunch of guys play the bagpipes and conversely if you let this job take over everything if you forget to tell your family that they're the most important things in your life and they always matter first one day you're going to come home and you're going to put the key in the door and nobody's going to be there hmm. and it really is that simple and and i i know when i say that i know what everybody is in the in the uh, audience is thinking especially the chiefs they're like oh yeah that's great be 100 percent at home until the phone rings <laughs> and i get and i get that we all have that but just because we can't do it one day doesn't mean that 100% isn't our goal every day. Some days it may be 90, some days it may be 50, some days it may be 10. Um, it doesn't mean we stop trying. What I always say is progress, not perfection. That's, give give 100% of what you have at that time that you're able that you're able to give and strive for even more. Before I let, before you go into the next one. What's your tips and tools to actually implement that? Because I know if I look back on mine, I was great at work. I could be having so-called crap stuff going on at home that actually was me taking stuff from work home and then it, me thinking it was reflecting the other way around. Um, but then when I, yeah, how, what, what would be your tools? Because I have my ideas on it now after going through it all and working through it. But what, what are the ones, that, what are the tools in that that you tell people to, you know, to really make sure that, that you can actually, you know, simple things to implement that and make sure that happens. I know focus on it, do the best that you can each day. What are some other things that you kind of. Well, one of the things we do with our program is um, we teach um, a set of what we call thinking traps which are thought processes 
that um, pull you into a spiral. So if you're teetering on the verge of PTSD, it will start you down. If you're already into it, it's going to pull you down deeper. Now, it starts off with something very, very innocuous, what I call tunnel vision, which what is tunnel vision? It's the inability to see options in life. Mm -hmm. And when you're a cop, what's the biggest thing that you have the inability to see options in? What if I'm not a cop anymore? What am I going to do? And I, I understand what a scary prospect that could be because I've been through it myself, myself. But what I try to tell people is, yes, it's a, yes, it's a job. It's a very big part of your life. But at the end of the day, if it's the job or your life, your life has to win. Ultimately, it is just a job. There are a lot of other jobs in the world. Just by the law of averages, you're bound to be qualified for one of them. And by the way, most of them pay better. <laughs> <laughs> with less stress <laughs> uh, I, and the other end of it is hopelessness you know that when you get the hopelessness you're bouncing off the bottom you're you're really you're really at the end but you know through that we show how these thinking traps make make they start to fall like dominoes okay one leads right into another one and by that we start to see this spiral that starts that starts bringing you down. Yeah, no, I I hundred uh, percent completely on board with that. I'd run a train that's called "Who Am I If Not." Yep. Who am I if not? You know, and it doesn't matter what stage of your career you're in. Who am I if not? Or even if you're not even a cop, it's the same exact thing. We have it, but cops have it real bad because we, you know, we have so much pressure on us. And and it is, it's so tr it's so true. When you can release that, and you can be like, hey, who am I? Who am I actually? Then you can actually be that person at different times and apply it in different ways. So I love that. I absolutely love it. Uh, and one of the and one of the other things I, I teach is you know in my in my lectures I always talk about the five signs of emotional suffering from the campaign to change direction because I think they're very important and it could be save the life of somebody you love one day. But I also try to emphasize with them when we're talking about cops, a lot of the stuff that we that we look at to see suicidal ideations, you're not going to see because what are we taught from the first day of the academy? We're taught to have that mastery over our, our emotions. So, you know, these, these cues, these things that come up that would tip you off on other people, generally speaking, you're not going to see them in cops. And, you know, I've, I've been to departments where they've had a suicide and these, they torture themselves, you know, what did we miss? What didn't we see? You know, and the truth is you could have been looking and you, you wouldn't have seen it. We're very good at putting masks on because it's what we have to do every day. We have to turn up to a grieving mother who's just lost their kid. We have to turn up to a person who's just, you know, been beat up completely. And we have to be this, this, the strong person for everybody. And so we are, we're very easy at it. I, I remember my darkest days where I would do stupid things on motorcycles and I wouldn't ever think about how do I take my own life, but I would think about it doesn't, I, I'll push myself and if something happens, it happens. That, well, you know, it's, I've, I've, somehow I think you've seen one of my lectures because that's, that's another thing that we talk about and we call, I call it the cop cure. And the cop cure it may go by different names. I call it the cop cure. But what the cop cure is, 
I'm having mental problems, I'm having emotional problems. They may be personal, it may be professional. It doesn't really matter because I'm a cop. So I can't go and get help with those things the way everybody else does. So what I do is I take the cop cure. And the cop cure is I take a job that's a lot harder and a lot more dangerous. And I let the rush help me to forget that mentally I'm coming apart at the seams. And you know something, it works for a while. It, it really does. But you know, eventually even that isn't enough. <laughs> I used to do it on, I used to, it wasn't so much the job I do it on my, it was on my motorcycle. Cause I ride motorcycles. And so I'd search for the thrill. Anybody who listens had heard me say this before. I'd search for that thrill and the adrenaline rush. And the, I would push things beyond the limits and, and that, and, yeah, it works for a while, but oh, and, and then it, it, it all it does is destroy more things. And where I was going with it was my best friend, who's a cop that I met at police college in training. I went through stuff twice while I was in my career, and the second time, I the first time, my wife and I didn't really tell anybody that we were going through stuff that things were struggle. Again, a cop thing. Don't need to tell people. Yet I wear my you know heart on my sleeve most of the time, as it, the true me. The second time I told my, my best friend, I was like, oh, you know, this is the second time. This is what we're going through. This is what's going on. He's like, whoa, wait a second before we continue. The second time? Didn't even see it the first time, yet I see him at least once a month. And so it is. We're, we're very good at it. So how do people how do people around us, you know, help recognize or, or help out in those kind of situations. If somebody is, you know, what, what are some of the signs that they might look for in this cop, maybe as a family member or a friend that you've found that can help so that they can just support the person, not try and change them, anything like that, because you know, you can't push a cop into doing something <laughs> or anybody really, but what are some of the signs and, and ways that they can support that person? It's, it's funny you ask that because one of the things I tell people is if you really want to know how somebody is doing, you never ask them. You ask the people that are closest to them because yeah. those are the people that are really going to see the changes. But one of the things, and I make it a point in all my lectures to talk about because of an experience I had, uh, I always talk about um, there is one very strong sign that someone is imminently considering suicide. And this is one of the ones you do see in cops. And it's so dangerous because it's so misinterpreted. And this sign is when somebody who has been very depressed for a very long time suddenly comes out of it. And because we always like to believe the best of, about the people that we care about, we always take that as a good sign. So we look at Bob and we'll say, oh, that's great. You know what, Bob, you know, he was dealing with the divorce, the job, whatever. He was down for so long, finally came out. But, you know, good, good for him. I'm, I'm glad. And anybody who has any background in mental health will tell you that is the time you need to be very, very concerned because Bob didn't get past his problems. Bob finally decided to do something about his problem. And like anybody that finds an answer to a question that's been dogging them for a really long time, they feel this great sense of relief. So you see, you see them sort of come out of this depression. And one of the reasons I always make it a point of saying that is uh, just before COVID popped off, I was testifying at the New Hampshire um, Commission on PTSD and First Responders. 
And it was panel uh, from all disciplines, law enforcement, fire, EMS, uh, government. And uh, after my talk, and I spoke about this, uh, two guys came over to me and they had this very shaken sort of look and they introduced themselves and they asked me, uh, they thanked me for speaking. And uh, they were two firemen. And uh, one of them said, he said, I have to tell you something. He said, a friend of ours killed himself last year. He said, and it happened exactly the way he said it was going to. He said, in fact, we, we were looking at a picture that we all took together about two weeks before it happened. And we were talking about how much better he looked and that, you know, we, we were happy for him. And after hearing that, this is one of the things that I always have to get out whenever I speak. Hmm. Is it is it because they kind of come back, they find that thing, they're like, oh, yeah, and then something happens and drops them down again? No, it's more that just um, when they finally made the commitment to take their own lives, they see that as the answer to their problems. So they get a sense of relief that now they've finally found the answer to the, to these things, to this problem that have, that's been dogging them for so long yeah so is it so i'm just trying to for for the listeners even oh, somewhat myself but for listeners so is it a they're, they're they've got this you know down sense to them and that or they're you know you can kind of see this downness to them and then they it's a drastic spike or is it yes yes yeah. they, they right. suddenly need to come out of it they're happy again they're engaging yeah. again and everything so there's no there's no gradual to it it's just uh oh one day they're not they seem not all that great not themselves and then all of a sudden they're back to that chippy happy everything is amazing self yeah okay i can i yeah i can see that <laughs> um yeah no it's uh yeah it's a it's a scary one isn't it um i like to ask everybody because i'm a why guy uh again this comes down into that uh who am i if not and I believe that we are our why, not what we do. Uh, and I have a process where I take people in a, a seven-step process that we go deep into this and really figure it out and figure out where it stemmed from in your childhood. Mine, for the longest time, and you know, it, it, it doesn't even, I don't think it changes, but you find different layers of it. Uh, my deepness of it was to create less pain. Uh, and now it's actually to, now I recognize it goes one level deeper. It's actually to, to so people are seen. To help them see themselves, um, because when I was young, I didn't I didn't feel like I was seen, uh, and so it's done everything in my life comes from my childhood. What would you say, uh, John? Yours, you know, your why is of who you actually are. My why is partly for the people I work with, and in a way, it reflects back, and it helps me with myself. So. I'm here today because when I was in a bad way, there were people that cared enough to do something. So now that I'm in a position to do something for other people, I feel not just a responsibility, but an obligation to do it as well. And believe me, there, there are days where this is really, really hard. There are days where I sit here and I say, I don't want this anymore. This is too hard. The problems are too big. And then I have to go back to that why, which for me was why I started doing it in the first place, 
which is all those people that got left behind and their lives and what became of them. And in a way, they sort of gave me my own why, because um, being able to be back with law enforcement again in a different, granted in a different capacity, but helping people, to me, that is, that gave me the rarest of all things in life. It gave me a second chance. Hmm. I love it. I love it. What was the why to get into law enforcement? Um, well, that's actually, again, that's a little bit of a funny story. Uh, I was never supposed to be a cop. Uh, when I first started in college, I was supposed to be a doctor. Then I was supposed to be a lawyer. And uh, I got really good LSAT scores, had really good college transcripts. And when I graduated college, it was the early 90s. And not only was the economy terrible, but there was more people at, in the U.S. at that time. There were more people in law school than there were working lawyers in the United States. <laughs> so now I'm beginning to think maybe this isn't a good career path. So I'm looking at where I can go with an economics degree. And I, and I looked at the, uh, the Treasury Department. And because I had an economics degree, I got recruited. I got into doing financial investigations. And uh, that's what started me on the journey. Oh, interesting, interesting. Oh, that's pretty cool. So what would be on that then? You know, you've done law enforcement. You, you're now helping law enforcement to, you know, to move through everything and, and be the best that they can be uh, and not, have, you know, not sit where you were for the longest time. Uh, what's your number one piece of advice for listeners when it comes to being the best uh, that they can be within themselves and within law enforcement? That's, that's, a, that's an interesting one. I would say to be the best you can be, no matter what it is, whether you're law enforcement or not, you have to find the thing you love in life and you have to love it intensely. It, it can't be a half effort. It has to be all in or nothing. Uh, I love that response. It is. It's it's full on. Especially as law enforcement, we're quite good at that. <laughs> Sometimes it's destructive. Um, okay, so uh, obviously you help out law enforcement with your wellness program and that with uh, the Mission First Partners. Uh, how do people? And we'll put all the con all the links down in the description down below. But how do people find you or seek out your services or get to know you more? Well, they can find us on, on our website and read about some of the things we do. Uh, they, can email, uh, they can email me. They can call. Uh, one of the things that we do every year, which I'm very proud of, uh, we do a, mem a remembrance every year called Twilight. And uh, Twilight is a remembrance of law enforcement lives that we lost to suicide. We do it every year on the day of the winter solstice because we pick the shortest day of the year to remember lives that were too short because of suicide. Mm -hmm. We ask people to record uh, to record videos. Uh, they can be about anything they want. They can be tributes. They can be memorials. They can be words of encouragement. And the videos are timed to end at the moment of sunset, twilight at which time we ask all of our participating agencies to call one minute of radio silence to remember everyone that we lost to suicide. 
And uh, we started doing that just three years ago. And in three years ago, in three years, it grew from one radio transmission in one police department to an hour and a half event. So I'm really hoping that more and more people are going to be encouraged to participate in it. So, you know, we can really shine a light on this problem. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, no, especially this year, the numbers are just uh, just coming out of the U.S. The numbers are, are, are crazy um, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it is it is it is a it's a it's a it's a pandemic in its own, to be perfectly honest. Um, so, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And everything you're doing is is amazing. Last question I have before we wrap up is what would you say your top tip to self-happiness is? say well you know what it's partly what you were saying before about finding your why but i don't really think you can find your why i think your why needs to find you and you need to be open to the experience of finding that i mean yeah you know i tell people all the time believe me i was before I got into all of this, I was very happily retired. I had a nice, quiet little life. I had my routine. I had no stress. If you think I wanted God touching me on the shoulder and saying, you need to do this, I'm about the last guy on the planet that wanted that. But, you know, here, here we are. <laughs> so uh, that, that's, that's, what, that's what I would say. Be open and let your why find you. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Obviously, I take people through a process of it, but they have to be open to it. You know, and I, I, law enforcement are some of the harder ones to, to work through, the ones that are current law enforcement, because they are very rigid and stuff. But once they are open and they let themselves be open to it, you're right. It is just, you. it flows and it just lands and it, it hits like a Louisville slugger. <laughs> oh, you, know, you know, Chris, I can tell you, uh, you know, counseling people, some of the toughest guys, the guys that don't want to say anything, you finally find that little crack and you get through to them. And it's like 30 years of crap just comes flowing out. It's like they, it's like they can't stop talking. Yep. So it's, it's really, it's making, it's making those connections to people where you can sort of break through that resistance and really get down to, you know, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's so true. Um, well, John, thank you very much for being here. Do you have any last words that you'd like to finish off with? Thank you for having me, Chris. Um, you know, I would just say to everybody out here, you know, on the job or off, you know, stay alert, stay healthy, and most of all, stay safe because we need good people out there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm going to add on to that. Also, uh, be open for um, assistance. You know, we call we call for backup when we need it. So let people be your backup. Uh, you know, let us that have that are that are doing what you and I are doing, John. Um, you know, be be that backup. Um, again, John, thanks for everything that you're doing. Um, what the stuff that you're doing is just amazing, and um, I'm so glad to see that it's going well, and hopefully it continues to grow and impact in that because it is is well needed. And uh, the more we can help, the more we can then help the citizens of you know of places as well again this is 
Yeah, it's been it's been amazing, John. Uh, again, this is fight the burnout. Uh, as I always say, uh, take one thing away from this that you that you that hit you and that you're like, oh yeah, that, and then just start to implement it and run with it or work on it. Uh, if we take too much stuff, then we get overwhelmed and we just end up taking no action at all. So just take action on one thing, uh, just like you would in a situation or a scene or a, a, a job, you, you just take, you start taking action. So take that action. Uh, also, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like and subscribe. Uh, we have every week a new episode comes out uh, with a law enforcement uh, or first responder uh, at the moment. And also if you can share this. There is somebody out there that's going to get a message from this like you have, or maybe you didn't get a message, but you know somebody that, that could use it. Uh, send it out, share it out to them because uh, the more people that we can hit and touch and impact, uh, the better the world will be. Uh, again, if you want to reach out to me, my email is team at createfromy.com uh, and I will email you back directly personally. Uh, but till next time, thank you. Keep being safe out there. Keep protecting us and uh, we will talk to you again soon.